This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, it's Alan, and welcome to a very special episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. Why, it's the Joel of Palooza. You know, there are all kinds of bosses. Showbiz attracts larger-than-life people, so larger-than-life bosses, like Joel. As time has gone on, I think I've come to understand and even appreciate Joel within his context. The thing is about Joel, you can't take him out of his context, if you want to appreciate him, that is. Not everyone appreciates Joel. Gil, as you'll see, see, still struggles with his feelings about Joel. One can't deny experiencing a certain PTSD from having worked for Mr. Silver. In fact, some people after experiencing Joel have felt compelled to put it in a movie. The character of the larger-than-life movie producer has been around almost since the beginning of movies. After all, the movies are a larger-than-life business. But even among larger-than-life producers, a few stand out. Joel's reputation is so large and definitive that other movie makers have modeled movie producer characters on him. The first was Kevin Spacey's Buddy Ackerman swimming with sharks. If you were in my toilet bowl, I wouldn't bother flushing it. George Wang, who wrote and directed the movie, makes no bones about it. Buddy Ackerman is based entirely on Joel Silver, for whom George Wang had worked. There are other movie characters based on Joel. Les Grossman, played by Tom Cruise in the movie Tropic Thunder. Not less monkey can do your job. You can forget about acting for the next 20 years. Your fucking career is over. Lee Donowitz in True Romance, played by Saul Rubinek. Cocksucker! I treated you like a son! You fucking stabbed me in the heart! But maybe the best actor playing Joel was Joel himself. And who framed Roger Rabbit? Lose the lights! Say lunch! That's lunch on a hand! One thing we got really good at while working for Joel was killing time outside his Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired office. It was like waiting for Godot, and then Godot shows up. There was always a lot to talk about with Joel, especially and going into the season, there were uh, so many decisions that had to be made. And Joel was very, very hands-on and insisted that, that he have you know, final say in an awful lot of critical decisions. And so, you know, he didn't want to have those conversations over the phone. Sometimes he wanted to, you know, it, it was part of calling people to him to sit in, in his space because you come to the king. The king does not go to you. The king doesn't shout. The king, he shouts at you in his office. That's how the king works. So I, I don't remember what it was that we had to discuss on that particular afternoon. I think it was around about one o'clock in the afternoon, maybe 1.30, and you and I went to, I think it was two o'clock, let, let's be good and say it was two o'clock, uh, a post-lunch meeting, quick, just to talk about a whole bunch of stuff that you had to talk about with Joel. Right. So we arrive promptly because you are very good about arriving promptly, even when you suspect it's pointless, and we proceed to sit. And we're waiting and waiting, and, and this is this is in the day where we didn't really have cell phones per se. I mean, people had cell. We had. I think we had. I don't even remember. This was so long ago. No, I mean, 
cell phones were if what we had they were they were phones nothing but phones and that's all they were good for and mm. they were big and heavy and and so it's not like you could use this time sitting in Joel's waiting room working on your phone it, it was utterly dead time and finally he he opens the door we come in he closes the door he gets up and he says come on go come with me now now before we get there now this is hours have gone by hours and uh it's really we got through two it's like three o'clock passes four o'clock passes five o'clock passes now occasionally just so we, we understand the the rising feeling okay come on come on already you had gone to his uh, his assistant several times and said look we we, we, only, we this is stupid we, we can't you know i just need we just need five minutes and he would go in and come back out and nothing would happen and occasionally i think you tried to push your way in and i think at one point joel just you know, waved you away you're like yeah, give, give me five give me five and of course the five turned into another hour so now suddenly the door opens come in and we walk in as Joel is, in essence, walking out. Because Joel has just lost a crown. And he says, come on, come on. I'm going to the dentist. Come with me. Right? And I look at him and I go, I don't want to go to the dentist. He said, well, we'll have, but he said, we'll have the meeting in the car. We'll have the meeting in the car. We'll, we'll talk about everything in the car. Great. Okay, fine. So th the only reason that we got into the car, that we allowed ourselves to be kidnapped, was that, was that, you know, Joel had basically said we could take care of our business on the drive to see his Beverly Hills dentist. Now, the minute that we got into the car, of course, Joel got onto his, his car phone. It wasn't a cell phone, it was a car phone. And suddenly it's one call after another, after another, after another. And there's not an opportunity for, for you to get a word in edgewise. And one of the calls, uh, of course, we can hear these calls. He puts everyone on speakerphone because Joel always wants it to be, you know, theater. And so, one of the calls—I—I—I I, I, I forget who called who. It's Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump, and I forget what business Joel had with Donald. They were talking about something or other. And then Joel acknowledges our presence there in the car with him. He says, "You'll never guess who I'm sitting here with, Don. You'll never guess who I'm sitting there. The producers of Tales from the Crypt." And Don goes, "Really." Tales from the Crypt, I love that show. And Joel says, you should be in an episode. And Don says, that's a great idea. Send me a script. And he hangs up. And they drive, and the drive continues, and another phone call, and another phone call. Finally, we arrive in Beverly Hills in front of his dentist. It is now, uh, God, we, we got to his place at, at uh, what do we say, two o'clock maybe. And now it's about six, 6.30. And we've driven through traffic to get to the dentist. And come on, come on, come on. And as we exit the car with Joel, uh, and it's being driven by his driver, was it Reggie? Reggie is the driver. Yeah. yeah so right. Reggie's driving. It's one of he had a he had a, a fleet of SUVs, did Joel? It's not a car, it's an SUV. And so he said it's a big ass SUV. He's sitting up front. We're sitting in the back. We might as well have been sitting in the way back. It's one, it's a giant SUV. And so we jump out and we follow him in and, and uh, you begin to, to, to tell him some of the business we got to talk to. We into the, into the lobby, into the little teeny elevator and the three of us going up the little elevator up to the, I think the third or fourth floor and we follow him down to the hallway. You're trying to squeeze in everything you possibly can as quickly as you possibly can. We go into the dentist, we meet his dentist. The this store is an house, after hours you know? kind of a thing. And into the, into the treatment room goes Joel.
I really wanted to follow him and, and ask the dentist if I could give him the Novocaine. <laughs> Truly. And then we sat there in the waiting room of that of the dentist's office for an hour. It, it took the better part of an hour for the whole thing to happen. And of course, you are losing your mind. You're this is this is the whole day is gone and and nothing is happening and. and it's dark uh, out. Oh, we yes, yes, the whole yes, day. It, it was light when this meeting started. Yeah. And, and now so, he comes out and now he comes out and he can't speak because they never can. But the dentist has something to say because the dentist pitches us an idea for an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Right. I've got an idea for a scary dentist. And we say, great, you know, uh, have have your people call our people in the morning. We'll set something up. Nothing ever comes of it, of course. Right. But back into the car, he's on his phone calling his girlfriend at the time, I think was Lisa. I think it was, I think it was Lisa. They had something that they were attending together that evening. And, you know, they were trying to arrange the getting her to, to, to where it had to be and getting him to where it had to be. He said, look, we'll, we'll stop in. It's on the way. We'll stop and pick you up on the way back from Beverly Hills to, to Warner Brothers. And so instead of going directly back to, to the studio to, to get on with our lives, maybe even have the meeting, no, we're going to stop at his house in the West Hollywood Hills, his Frank Lloyd Wright house, to pick up his, his girlfriend to take her to this, you know, so that she can get to this event with him. Phone call, phone call, phone call, phone call. Finally, we arrive at, at, at his Frank Lloyd Wright house. And Reggie, you and I shuffle into the living room. Joel heads into the bedroom, not very far away from where the living room is. We, we can hear Joel and his girlfriend, Lisa, having a conversation as if they're in the very next room. And I, I don't remember what Joel said, but the next, it, 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 it pissed her off. It made her super angry because Lisa was very petite, very pretty young woman, but tiny. I mean, just compared to Joel, she, she was three of her could fit inside Joel, four maybe. And in the next room, this 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 little woman this, is ripping Joel Silver several new assholes. And Joel is absolutely befuddled. And they're in the living room. Gil, Reggie, and I are stunned by what we're hearing. And the urge to laugh is incredible. It is the funniest thing we've ever heard. And it gets louder and louder. And we're desperate not to laugh. Because if we laugh, Joel will hear us. And that can't happen. But it goes on and on. Finally, it stops. And Joel emerges into the dining room. She'll meet us later, he says. Come on. We follow him out. Silence. All urge to laugh. Go, 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 go. Follow him out. We get in. He drives back to the studio. Total silence. No phone, no nothing. Joel goes his way, and we go our way. And I think maybe you got about three sentences of what you had to tell Joel that day. Told. By that point, it's uh, I think it was eight o'clock at night. And I think we made a, we made an executive decision that you know something we don't need to ask him any of these questions. We'll just do it. And, <laughs> and, we, did, and we did it. And then we learned we learned an important lesson.
That's what we did for the most part thereafter. We just did it. And if there were problems, then we would hear about them. Now, there's a coda to this story. And years you just told later. me this, and I'm, I'm shocked because I know nothing about this. Well, uh, years, years later, I, I would say, you know, 2014, 15, 16, somewhere in there, um, I, after, after Valkyrie... Gil produced Valkyrie for Warner Brothers. ...got very involved with veterans and raised a lot of money for veterans. In fact, I left the business for five years and did nothing but raise money for, for veterans. And so um, through an ad agency in New York who knew what I was doing, they introduced me to Mariana Duncan, the Yankees pitcher. And Mariano and I became quite friendly because he was very involved with trying to raise money for domestic abuse and for children. He's a very religious guy, lives in New Rochelle. And we became somewhat friendly. We would talk every once in a while. Hmm. And I get a call from the ad agency one day in New York, I'm in LA. And they said, well, listen, there's gonna be a benefit for Mariano. And he's asked me to invite you. He wants you there. And I go, well, tell him thank you very much. But, you know, I'm in L.A. And, you know, I don't I don't really see myself fly. No, no, no. They'll pay for everything. They want you there and your wife. So we go, oh, OK. So we fly to New York and we're staying at the very fancy hotel. And finally, they go, OK, the event is going to be tonight or tomorrow night. And the car will pick you up. And, uh, you know, it'll take an hour to get to the event. I go, where is the event? It's at the Donald J. Trump golf course in Westchester. And I'm like, really? They oh couldn't find another place? So there's nothing I can do about it. So I go up. And they want you there a little early for some press pictures with Mariano, et cetera, et cetera. So we get up there. It's a gorgeous place. You know, I think, I think they charge like a quarter of a million dollars for initiation. Yeah, yeah and 100,000 a year membership, something like that. Yeah. And I'm there. An obscene number, I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm, and it's a gorgeous place. And I'm up there. And, uh, you know, Mariano comes in and we're, you know, doing whatever we did. Yeah. And then he says, you, you got to, you know, I want to introduce you to Donald. So Jeannie and I walk over and Donald, he's a big guy. And he looks at me like, you know, I'm nothing. And then looks at my wife, like, who is she? Like she's something, yes. And, 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 and she like, is. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like standing there looking at him, looking at my wife and like, you know, I can almost I can almost see the drool on his mouth. Oh my God. And and uh, he said something very nice to her. And then he said, I'll catch up with you later to me and walked away. At the start of season two, we told the story of the Crypt Keeper's creation. One person did not create that iconic character. Four people did. And Joel wasn't one of them. But to be fair, the Crypt Keeper wouldn't exist without him. Kevin Yeager designed well, the Crypt Keeper puppet. John, John Kassir is the voice he, of the Crypt Keeper. So he Keeper. did the audition first. I mean, he laid it down on tape. It was just cassette tape, you know, back then. I went in and listened to, to it. And then I think I remember pulling him back in and have him doing it again in front of me. And that's what I think what he's saying. My yeah. reaction was seeing him. I, didn't, rem- I didn't remember that. I couldn't, believe that. I couldn't believe that voice came out of this nice guy, you know, this, this, <laughs> this normal looking guy. And I, I wanted to see it for real. Like, what, what is that voice going and then what got me, the, the, what killed it, was the laugh. I mean, and and I was my my assignment was to bring in three voices out of all the they sent me I don't know twenty people or so, and all, mostly stand up comedians like John. And so they said just pick three and we'll we'll all decide together. And so I walked in, and this is no lie, I walked in with one tape and it was yours. And I wow. gave it to Joel. I went into his office and I sat. We had this little console on the side of his desk. 
and you know we both pulled up chairs and he popped in and he, you know he's like he was like a kid he just loved this stuff and he was just real close to the to the speaker and i said i don't care what you say i don't you know you can go look at other people i'm not interested i said this guy is it the voice is it the laugh is incredible you're i've looked at 20 guys they don't even hold a candle and i'm not just blowing smoke up oh thanks your, your heine I mean, i'm telling you this was <laughs> you, blew, you blew me out of the water and and to this day it's like that voice is just the classic voice with the character because that's that's how great it is so i i said here it is that's it that's all i have to say and so then he said, well, I'll call him and have him come in. And that's, I think you went out to meet them. I wasn't there, but you went out to meet Joel and, and then Donner. Yeah. But I already said, I'm not doing, I was basically saying I'm not doing, I'm not kidding. I said, I'm not interested. This guy, this guy has, every, and, and as soon as Joel heard it, he just huge smile on his face and, and he was shaking his head, you know, doing all that stuff. So I knew you were in at that point, but they had to make sure that at least one of the <laughs> executives had signed off on it too. And that was good. At one point, either the first year, the second year, something, they came to me and said, we're not, we're not being able to make a deal with John. Something happened with your deal. And yeah. they actually, I wanted more, I wanted more than scale. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> and, I wanted double scale yeah. instead of scale. To get paid. Scale plus 20, you <laughs> Something happened and Joel said, we have to find another Crypt Keeper voice. And I just, I was like, I was like falling apart. Like, what are you talking about? So yeah. they, they go out to Burbank, Sound Studio in Burbank. And this old guy, I don't know who it was, this old guy is behind this mic. They said, just go over there and, 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 and listen to him. So I went over there and he was fucking terrible. Excuse me. He was, <laughs> he was, he was so bad. And he was, he, he looked to me like at the time, like 58 or something. It was just like, what, who is some old friend of Donner's probably, I don't know. But he was just, and kind of thank God. And I just called up Joe. I said, you guys are out of your mind. You guys are out of your mind. I don't know who this guy is. You got to go make a deal back with John. So what happened with, can you talk about what happened with that? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I mean, literally, you know, I had already done two seasons at scale, yeah. which was fine. And, you know, I mean, it's, it is hard, hard work. And I was doing two other series. I was on a network series as well at the time. And I was like, you know what? They could pay me double scale yeah. or my manager, you know, who's, she's no longer with us. She died at 40 from cancer, oh. but she, she used to be right in Joel's face. She didn't, yeah. she was, she was like one of the only people I've ever seen who wasn't scared of Joel Silver at all. She'd be like, Joel, you're sitting at a Frank Lloyd Wright desk. <laughs> Tell that desk, whatever money you get for it, give it to John. He'll never ask you for another cent. How's that? <laughs> All right, I'll give him double scale. Ah. Literally, we just want a double scale. Just to, just to let us know that I was coming in and getting paid something besides scale, you know, because they never gave me more than a day player contract. Yeah. You know, I mean, like you were saying, they once they started licensing it, they were licensing the show for nothing. I was getting yeah. residuals for 13 cents. You know, I was just like, that's because how little they paid me. One final irony. None of the Crypt Keeper's actual creators owns a single bit of him. Joel owns the whole lot. As Joel would put it, what else, what else, what else? Well, Joel, as you recall, on Tales from the Crypt, we had quite a few famous first-time directors. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Hanks, Michael J. Fox, you. I had the same argument with him with the phone. Because I said, Joel, Joel, you're directing the episode. You know, as a director, I need your full attention. And Jan de Bont was shooting it with Jan. Oh, that's right. Jan de Bont, he, he wanted Jan to be his, his DJ. And these, two young, and these two young girls that looked like they were dead. <laughs> they were just so white. Yeah. Uh, they were playing in the park. And, and they were an interesting... An interesting, uh, interesting young women. 
uh, yeah. interesting personalities. So, so, so I would say to Joel, yeah. you, you can't you can't be on the phone. You know, we're, we're setting things up because we're setting things up. We're, we're, what's, we're, why can't I be on the phone? We're setting things up. I said, you got to put the phone away. You're, you're the director this week. You can't, you're not the producer. I'm the producer. You're the director. You have to put it away. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm the producer. I go, okay, you're the producer. You can't have a phone. What are you telling me? I'm not the producer. I'm the producer. You're the producer too, but I'm the producer. I said, Joel, this week, you're not the producer. This week, you're the director. He goes, out of your fucking mind. I'm the producer all the time. I said, okay, you're the producer all the time. But this week as the director, you can't use the phone on the set when we're working. So I got him to walk off the set. But then Jan would come over to me and he'd go, I need Joel. And I said, well, he's right over there. And so I would go over to Joel because Jan said, you get him. So I go over to Joel and Joel would, again, with the phone, he would be, you know, pushing me away. Go away, go away. I'm on the phone. I go, Joel, Jan needs you. And, and I need you right now. You know, we don't do this in between phone calls. You do the phone calls in between our shooting. So I got into a big argument with him that lasted, you know, for a long time. I mean, he really was pissed off at me. Um, and I remember weeks later, you know, he would really? he, just, remind just, me. After, after he was done directing. Oh, yeah. Totally pissed off at me for, for being as rude as I was because I said, you're not the producer. And also that you can't use the phone on the set. And then, you know, it's funny because Dick found out about it, Dick Donner. And when, when the three of us were together, I mean, anytime Dick wanted to wind Joel up, <laughs> he would say, how do you come to it? How do you come to a set as a director with a phone? Leave your phone at home. I never bring my phone. I'm sure when Gil directs, he doesn't bring his phone. And, and he would just wind Joel up and Joel would go up and down. Uh, both of us. Whose decision was it that Joel would direct? Was it Joel's idea or was someone else's idea? No, it was Joel's idea. I once went into his office. He called me into the office and, and I said, what's going on? What do you want? And he said, um, I got a great idea. I go, okay, what? And this is where I would hear about different directors and different actors that he wanted to, you know. And I would say, what? And he goes, I'm going to direct an episode. I said, you're going to direct an episode? Yeah. I said, so, so when you direct an episode, are you really directing the episode? So what are you talking to me? Like, of course. And that's when I said, no phones, no, no guests, no visitors, no, 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 nothing outside of what you're doing. You need to be focused on what the camera is seeing and what the actors are doing. And you got to filter that through your eye. That's what the director does. You ready to do that? And he goes, of course I am. What the hell's the matter with you? I've done this more than you have. I said, okay, okay. I just want to make sure everybody has the same rules. I talked this way to Billy Freakin. I talked this way to John Frankenheimer. I just want you to know that those are the rules. And of course, you know, there were no, there were no rules when he, when he came of up. Course not. Of but, course not. But I'll never forget sitting there saying, when he said to me, he's going to direct it. And then he said, and I want Jan DeBont to shoot it. I went, yeah. wait a minute, we have to, um, you know, we have a DP. I know, I know. It doesn't matter. We'll pay him. I don't care. I, I want you on the bond. And so, you know, that's how it, that's how that happened. To paraphrase Mark Antony, I come to bury Bordello of Blood, not to praise it. It's quite possible that we made every filmmaking mistake there is in making that goddamn movie. Once the decision was made not to make Dead Easy, the shit show cavalcade just kept rolling. It all started with where we made the movie and why. Why Vancouver? 
Do, was, was there any? All right, I, I, I've never even thought twice about it. I mean, yes, Vancouver is a film is a film place, but I mean, we we could have gone anywhere out of state. We didn't. It's not like Vancouver had stuff we needed. Well, let's look at it from two points of view. One is the actual point of view of good filmmakers trying to find a place to shoot their movie. So the dollar was very strong. It was like 75 cents to the dollar. So you got mm. more benefit. They had crews. They didn't have a lot of crews. So if you didn't get you know, your crew locked down, you might get these high school people who were running the lights for the musical. But it was an up and coming place. So that's the reason why you would go there if you did this logically. Illogically, you would also consider that one of the producers was making a movie in Seattle with one of the biggest stars in the world, Sly Stallone. And he also wanted to be able to be close. Working for Joel meant putting out fires, lots of them. And most of those fires were started by Joel. I don't think we were anticipating the fiasco that was coming. I think if we had if we had anticipated it, we got we got on a plane, go back to oh New Orleans. God, yes. But <laughs> but my, my but my point is, we were we were actually kind of upbeat at that point. I, I think we thought, oh well, we're we're we'll muddle through. We'll make the best of a, of a uh, of yeah. not the happiest situations. But yeah. you know, we all right. We didn't have Erica in our in in hand yet, but we we had Dennis, and hey, okay, we were committed to it. We had Angie, and what the hell, <clears throat> whatever. And we were making a movie and Vancouver was lovely. It was, it was, it was nice being there and it, yeah, we were, we were making a movie. And so the whole world seemed to feel right. Okay. Yeah. Right enough anyway. And then, then the weekend came. Now there's a picture that I have. I, I, I wish I, 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 I'll find it or not. It's one of our wives took it. We went out on the Saturday for brunch, the four of us, you, Jeanette, me, Helen. And as soon as we sat down, your phone rang, then my phone rang, you know, the big massive cell phones <laughs> up to our heads. I'm right. sure irradiate, irradiating our brains. Right. And uh, I don't know what fire you were putting out, but I was putting out the, we got to get Erica Aleniak on a plane tomorrow, Sunday, to be in wardrobe Monday to work on Tuesday. Right. And her manager, whose name I can't remember, I'll have to ask Victoria, her manager was telling me that there was a problem, that Erica had big issues with the script and she was not going to get on an airplane unless we committed to making significant changes to the script. Correct. Uh, she didn't want to play hookers or or sexy lady. She didn't want to be a sexy women. lady. Yeah, she she wanted to be more of an actress. Right. Even though she had recently done a full nude pictorial in Playboy. But, but she now wanted to be an actress. For some reason, the the title page on the script we sent her said Hamlet. I don't know why we did that. Yeah. And so she said yes to Hamlet. And then we said, oh, we're just kidding. It's called Bordello of Blood. That must be what happened. That must be why her her, Clearly. her her manager insisted that that her her concern, yeah, the originally as written, uh, this little church secretary had a, a secret past. 
she had been a, uh, a porn star named Chesty O'Toole. <sighs> God, it hurt to it's say. Kind of painful. It's kind of painful going back to this, you know? <laughs> Boy, it actually hurt to say that. It, oh, God. Yes. And uh, she did not want to play. If, initially, she, she did not want her character to be a former porn star. Well, that was going to be a problem because the script is written. That was her connection to 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 Dennis's character. That's how he was going to know her. If we right. if we take this away, what are we going to do to accommodate that? And hey, we've already you know, we already ready. We had a, a movie theater an empty movie theater in the worst part of Vancouver, an empty movie theater that we were using as his office. Mm-hmm. And the whole premise, this was already happening. The whole premise was, of course, that he was, he was in the porno. And she, <laughs> Chesty O'Toole, was his favorite porno actress. Right. Well, if you take that away, what are we, what are we going to do? Well, then you have Hamlet. But, but, but what does she do? What does she sell him? She sells him insurance. It was a it was a bind, and and so what we finally, you know, I think I think I think Shakespeare was was had the same issue, and that's how Hamlet evolved. It must have been. Must have been. In in the end, what she what her manager agreed to was that she she was a she had been a a large woman. And she had been a an overweight porn star named I, I thought was it Chubby O'Toole or <laughs> yeah, I think it was Chubby. I think it no, was Chubby O'Toole. So, but she, and she of course now she was unrecognizable because she had slimmed down. Right. And and this is what we agreed to. Now, of course, at this point, I will agree to anything to get her on an airplane. Right. Anything. Because literally the man has us over a barrel. There's nothing we can do. That is the fire that I put out. And and that created a whole other set of, of nightmare scenarios because that can how to get the script was now having going to get rewritten on Sunday with because this was going to ripple all the way through the script. And right. of course, we were going to have to introduce Dennis to the idea that his character was, hey, you know the part where you were a porn star and maybe you like that, maybe you don't? Well, now... Chubby hubby. Now you like chubby. You were, I mean, what we were going to hand the man in that script the next day was becoming ludicrous. Well, the, right. the fire, if I recall correctly, the fire that I was putting out... Thank you. Right, was I, I was on the phone with Joel and he said to me, you got to call Dennis. Uh, because Dennis needs to talk to you and he has a lot of concerns and demands and you need to agree to the demands. Oh I said, what, 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 what demands? He goes, well, I'll let you, I'll let Dennis tell you. Now I think Joel had already heard the demands and I don't think he wanted to tell me, but be that as it may, I get on the phone with Dennis uh-huh. and Dennis is saying to me stuff like, well, first of all, I only work an eight hour day. I don't work longer than eight hours. And I said, no, no, Dennis, we're making a movie here. Everybody works at least a 12 hour day. What? We're paying you a million dollars. Oh. We're paying no. you a million dollars. That was not in your contract, son, that you only have to work eight hours a day for your million right. bucks. So, so that was the first thing that was a problem that I, I, I that, and I wouldn't agree to it. Then the second problem was, right. um, he needed a private jet to bring him back and forth because he was doing his show on HBO Friday night. 
So we needed to provide him with a private jet to take him, and he would only work a half a day on Friday and take him down for his show and then we'll bring him back, not on over the weekend or Sunday, but the, the jet wouldn't leave until Monday morning. So we couldn't get him on the set, which was starting at six, six or seven in the morning. He wouldn't be able to join us till 12 or one, which I didn't agree to. Then um, I think he wanted his own makeup person, his own hair person, which I didn't agree to. And I mean, that was, that was the conversation, but I mean, it was, and, and when, when I called Joel back saying, I don't think this is going to work, he would say stuff like, oh, no, it's got to work. No, we, we, we got Dennis. Dennis is doing a movie. You got to figure this out. Easily the most outrageous story from Bordello was when Joel came to visit us in Vancouver and nearly caused an international incident. Did you know Joel was coming that day? Let's start there. Well, I guess the true answer is no. I had no idea that he was coming, but it was probably my own fault that he came because I kept saying to him, Joel, you know, I don't understand. You're, you're in Seattle with Stallone and Dick Donner. Dick Donner is an established director. I'm not. This is my first movie. Yet you choose to be in Washington, in Seattle with Stallone. I can't believe that. And with Donner. I mean, I'm the first time. He goes, what are you talking about? You've directed Tales from the Crypt and you've directed this. And I trust you and you know what you're doing. I know, Joel, but, you know, <clears throat> it would mean a lot to me if you can, you know, you come up here. It's okay, I'll come up. I'll come up. I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there. And I'll go, yeah, when are you going to get there? You'll always have an excuse not to get here. I think you should come up. I think it would mean a lot to me if you came up. I think it would mean a lot to see you on the set and for the crew, for the cast and everybody. And oh, I really dear. wanted him oh, to come dear. Up. oh, dear. Wait, wait, wait. Did you so really? I, yeah. And I really wanted him to come oh, up so I could God. have... No, but I really wanted him to come up so I could, personally I could have a conversation with him about replacing Dennis. I did not know that. I real that's what I really wanted. Because this was the first day, right? Did you have a some, Did you have something in in your pocket in terms of who who we would now that we're shooting? Uh, not I. I think I did then, but I can't remember who it might have been. And it probably was somebody that it, it was in the family. It was either someone who did tales with us, mm -hmm. or someone that had worked with Joel. Somebody that we could call yeah, home. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, there, there, there were plenty of people who who yeah uh, who certainly would have been kind of not better than Dennis. Yeah, yeah. As he's on the airplane, is that when he contacts you the second time to say, "Hey, I don't have any idea on me." Uh, pick up the pieces when I land on the other side of an international border. Well, it was funny because I was shooting and the first time that he called after, you know, I was, I was working and I think I said, I don't know if you were with me on the set, Ed, or, Ed or, Tapia. or, or BAD. No, I said, yeah. yeah I, I think I said, please tell him, you know, I'm working, I'm directing. I can't talk to him now. I'll call him at the end of the day. And then he called back and he said, get Gil on the phone for me. So I get on the phone and he, and I go, What's all the noise in the background? I can just about hear you. There's, there's a lot of noise. He goes, you know what the noise is? I'm on a plane. You know where I'm going? <laughs> I'm going to Vancouver to visit you. I said, you are? You, you, you mean now? He said, yeah, I'll be there in an hour, two, hour, two hours, max. I said, oh, great. Okay, cool. What do you want? I'm he on said, the well, plane. I got a little problem. I don't have my passport. I go, well, Joel, then turn around and come tomorrow because you can't cross the border without a passport. You need a passport. I can't do anything about that. He goes, no, no, no. You need to call Canada and tell them I'm coming and tell them to let me in. 
And I go, and I want to, I want to stop right there because I seriously remember Gil handing me the cell phone, covering it like this and saying, Joel says we have to call Canada. Who in Canada are we supposed to call? (laughs) I mean, I was like, I mean, right. these moments. he said, he said, Gil, you told me who <laughs> in Canada are we supposed to call? And then you got back on the phone. Right. And so I go, Joel, there's nobody, there's no Canada to call. There's, there's nobody, there's no Canada. There's immigration. Immigration won't let you into the country. It's really that simple. Just go back, get your passport and come tomorrow or, or in a few days. No, no, no. I'm already in the air. I'm, I'm on my way. I'll be landing in about 25 minutes. Just call Canada and tell them to let me in. I go, and again, I, I say the same thing. And he goes, well, if they don't let me in, I'm going to pull the movie. Tell them I'm spending millions of dollars on this production. And if they don't let me in, I'm going to pull the movie out of there. And I go, Joel, they don't care about our movie. They don't care how much we're spending or how much we're not spending. They're there to protect the borders. You know, they, they represent the country. And, and I, think I, I think I ended the conversation, if I remember correctly. And I, and I think I said to him, if you, didn't, if you didn't wear your pajamas all the time, you could have put your passport in your pocket and you'd have it. Click. And then he called me <laughs> and did the same thing with me that you, he had just said with you, literally the exact same stuff. Oh my God. No, oh my God. Like, oh, yeah, it didn't work with him. Maybe it'll work with you. And I, I went back to the office and <clears throat> somehow Colleen had found out. And at that point, Colleen is almost running down the hallway saying, Joel Silver's coming. Joel Silver's coming. We don't have any grape Snapple. Grape Snapple? Because <laughs> somebody had told her that he'd always insisted on having grape Snapple. I'm sure glad that didn't make its way to the set. <laughs> is that true? I, 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 I didn't. It, it, it was, was, was Joel a, a grape Snapple guy? Oh my God, in London. You don't remember in London, I sent Glenn out for a day and a half to find grape Snapple before Joel showed up and he couldn't find it. He was gone a day and a half and he finally found it like in East London somewhere and brought back the whole case. <laughs> now Joel lands at the Vancouver International Airport in a, in a private plane. Because it, it, it was, he didn't, he didn't not the one that he was supposed to be, not the one that we had the information on the travel memo and that we'd assigned the driver. Production manager, okay, Colleen so, Neistat. So, so he's changed. He's, he's landing on a different plane than we expect. He lands at the airport. And when he approaches Canadian customs, they say papers. And his response is, don't you know who I am? To which well, he didn't, he didn't even have a driver's license. No, he didn't nothing, have anything. Nothing. And so I, of course, I'm the I'm, I get the call, and because uh, I deal with the border regularly as part of the, part of the job, and uh, they anyhow the the punchline was he made their lives a living hell, and they just asked me, Colleen, will you vouch for him? And that's how we got him into the country. And then he came to the studio where the Home Depot is now, and had a massive fit. We get him into the into Transpo because we want to show off, you know, there's show and tell to it. The first stop is our our production facility. What was it like when the Tasmanian devil landed in the middle of, of our little studio? Production manager, Colleen Neistat. Uh, well, it was deeply unpleasant. Um, First of all, we've been trying to track him and he changed all the plans without telling anybody. Then he arrives at the airport without any ID. We finally get the driver to get him and bring him to the studio. He comes through the front door. 
You were actually at, at, at the studio when, when Joel was there? Oh, yeah. Nothing was good enough. He had it, it, nothing was good enough. Everything was bad. He even hated the fact that, you know, my, my production company was called New City Productions and it had a, a sign which was actually the lands, the, the skyline of Vancouver was the logo. And he was like, tear that down. Um, do this. Do, he just walked through like a like a wrecking ball through the and and that was a big place. I I've been prepared to take him for a uh, you know a walk around the studio. We had about ninety thousand square feet, as you recall, and we had sets built all over it. And so you know, my original plan was when the executive producer arrives, we'll give him the tour of the facilities and and go through the whole spiel. Um, but he Late just plans. was in full on. I'm, you might have prepared us. I got a call on set from my assistant that if I did not get back there right at that moment, if I did not get back there, everyone was quitting. Yeah. And I raced back there. And I I begged, I begged, I begged, I begged. I, I, I'm sure I promised things that I could in no way deliver. <laughs> but whatever I had to do, yeah, I was calling people, trying to figure out how to get him in the country when suddenly he rolled up. I see this entourage assembling, and all of a sudden, Joel walks onto the set in his pajamas. Our first AD on uh, Bordello was named Lee Knipperberg. And right. Lee, Lee's nickname for Joel was the Pajaminator. <laughs> or because he was Canadian, he said the Pajaminator. Back right. to Joel. And he looks at me and he goes, you're a real piece of shit. I, I can't believe it. I go, what? He goes, you couldn't call Canada to get me into the country. I had to do it myself. I said, do it myself. Do who, it who did you call? Who did you call? He goes, never mind. I didn't call anybody. I got to the airport and they wouldn't let me into the country. I told them who I was. And they wouldn't <laughs> let me into the country. And finally, I told them I'm going to pull the movie. And my lawyer spoke to somebody. And now they let me into the country. So then he sat down, you know, had a chair next to me, he sat down. And he just, you know, sat there for like maybe three minutes and then got his phone out and, and started making calls. And I said, Joel, you can't make calls here. I'm directing a movie. You can't, you can't sit here and make calls. And he gave me, you know, one of these, you know, go away, leave me alone. And I Don't said, you Joel, know who I am? Joel, you got to get away from here. You got to move away. Walk, walk, walk 20 paces over there. Okay. Cause I'm shooting. I'm going to shoot in about two seconds. I don't want to stop shooting because you're on the phone. So again, again, it goes like this and he walks away and he comes back and he says to me, what'd you do that to me for? And I said, but to what? And he said, why did you tell me to go off the set? I said, no, I didn't tell you to go off the set. I told you to go off the set. If you're going to talk on the phone, you know, I'm not asking you to leave the set. I'm asking you to talk somewhere else. And we got into that a little bit. He didn't want to let that go. And then finally he sat down and I think I did like one or two shots. And then he said, well, I got to go. I said, where are you going to go? What, what are you going to do? This is uh, Vancouver. Do you guys, do you guys remember what the phone call that he was so, what he was trying to do? No. It was, he was doing executive decision. He was trying to land Steven Seagal. All those phone calls that day were about Steven Seagal. In fact, when after he left the set, he went back to the office and you guys told me to go babysit him. So I was sitting outside Gil's office when he was on the phone and he had the call. I'll never forget where he's screaming at an agent saying, am I allowed to curse on this, Alan? 
Yeah. Okay. Because Joel's exact words were, you don't understand. I just need him to fucking die. I'm going to pay him five million and he needs to fucking die. And he was talking about Steve Seagal in executive decision. And he was screaming at the stage and saying, I just need him to fucking die. That's what I need him for. <laughs> I think he said, I got to go back tonight. I said, you got to go back tonight. So what are you here for two hours? I mean, why did you come up? I thought you'd spend a day or two. Be on the set with me. Watch me work. Tell me where I go wrong. Tell me what I'm doing right. You know, being a producer with me. And he said, what are you talking about? I don't have time. I don't have time for that. I got to get back to him. I got to get back to Donner. I said, oh, like he really needs you. I don't think Donner really needs you. I think I need you. And I think you should be more concerned about me directing this movie than Donner. After maybe 15 minutes, maybe it was a half hour. I don't remember. But it was a short period of time. He left. And I was like, that's it? That's it? You came up to visit me? That's it? For a half hour? He goes, well, well, what time are you going to wrap? I said, I, I don't know. We sometimes, you know, don't make our day. And the amount of time we have, we go over. He goes, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll stay up. We'll have dinner. But, but I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. And then, of course, I never, <laughs> I never heard from him again. He just, he just went back to the office, as Ed was saying. Um, I never knew what, what that was all about. And then that was it. The next day I spoke to him, I said, where are you? And he goes, what do you mean, where am I? I'm in Seattle. What are you doing in Seattle? I thought you came to visit me. I came to visit you. I saw you yesterday. Don't you remember? I saw you yesterday. I said, I saw you for 10 minutes. And you said, maybe we'll have dinner. I never heard from you again. He goes, I'm not, not going to hang around there waiting for you for dinner. I flew back to Seattle. By the way, he still owes me $10 because I went with the Teamsters with him to the airport and he didn't have the $10 Canadian exit fee and I had to give it to him. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> you had to pay the, give him the $10 to get the hell out of the country. He didn't have his wallet. He had no ID. He had nothing. Right. The story of Joel's second visit is a very personal story. At the time it happened and for a long time after, I understood it one way. And then my eyes got opened and I started to see it quite differently. You be the judge. Oh. It was on the day that we shot the torture chamber scene. That was the day that I finally, finally for once, I put my foot down. Because, you know, Dennis always wanted to wanted us to shoot, shoot him out so we can go home and, and sleep. Yeah. And uh, he would send his assistant to my office. And finally that day, you know, we had, we had a lock off because we had a stunt. We had a, a process shot where, you know, Axe was going to go through her shoulder and cleave it right in two. You know, we had, you know, he was going to enter and then there was a, a cut for the stunt to get over the railing down to the underside. Then we're going to pick right. him up on the, on the underside. He's going to then step into the, oh, yeah. the oh, shot, yeah. pick up the Axe and bury it in Angie's shoulder. It was a, a you had a great shot in mind. Right. And it was, but it was, you know, it was special effects. And so. Right. Oh, we'll get to that. Elements. But we'll get to that in more detail later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but you know, it was. Yeah. But Joel came that day, and right, there were repercussions. There were rep Oh, there were repercussions. Oh my! There God. always are. Uh, yes, this was off to the side. I, I don't think you even saw this happening, and I don't think I ever talked about this. What that happened with you? Maybe I did. I I don't remember. Yeah. It was the most ironic moment in my life. Happened. Anyway, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, I had said yes to Dennis every day. Every day he wanted to, you know, to, to be shot yeah, out early. Yeah. We said yes to him every single day. Yeah. And then this was the day the, the torture chamber set. 
and he was going to enter. So there was a, a, a cut because there was a stunt as he went over the railing, landed into the well of the torture chamber. Then he picked up an axe and right. then he was going to bury it in Angie's shoulder. So then there was a lock off on the other side for a process shot. Right. We had three different pieces. And if we screwed up any one of those pieces, of course, we could take the whole day's work yeah. and throw it in the toilet. Per usual, uh, Dennis would send his assistant to my office first thing in the morning, and she'd say, you know, the usual thing, oh, Dennis is so tired. Can we sleep? Shoot him out. And, and every day I'd go, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Now, I'm sure she was expecting you know, me to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, not today. She was like, what? I said, no, no. I said, look, and I will grant you, I was not, I didn't say it that nicely. I said, no, I can't, not today. And I was beside myself. I was not doing it in, in, in the kindest, most Zemeckis way possible. I said, look, I've got a stunt here. He's going to have to go there. Then I got to pick up the ax and I got a lock off shot on the other side. And I said exactly what I just said to you. If we screw up any one of these elements, I can take the whole day's work and throw it in the, right. in the I said, no, 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 no. She said, Dennis isn't going to be happy. And that I think triggered a little something in me. And I said, I don't care. I don't care. And she went, okay. And she went out to, to the trailer and gave Dennis the bad news. Now, I had no idea that Joel was going to be visiting today. Not that it would have changed what I said, mm -hmm. but Joel visited that day. And of course, the first place he went was to go see Dennis, to go see his star, mm -hmm. his star. As soon as Joel walked in into the trailer, the first thing that, you know, he said, how are you doing this? And Dennis said, I'm horrible because Cassie won't let me go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Cassie won't let you go. What do you mean you won't let you go? Well, I'm tired. You know, I'm doing my show and you, you got to shoot me out. And Joel said, what? You want to go and Cassie won't shoot you out? I'll take care of Cats. And then he walked down onto the set and he found me. In one of his big Joel voices, he said, Cats, Cats. And I was standing on the other side of the building, I think. I wonder where I was. You were working. You, you, were, you were setting up a scene. Right. You were doing what you're supposed to be doing. So now, of course, everyone who's not on the set working with you has now turned to watch me walk across the stage to my boss. Okay, now I'm walking fast. And as he approached me, he said, I got to tell you something. Your people skills are shit. <laughs> Oh my God, I've just experienced the most ironic moment of my entire life. Joel Silver has just told me that my people's skills are shit. Yeah. To Joel's credit, really, really. And, and I, I will give Joel full credit at the end of this story. He saw that he had, he had broken me down and now he needed to fix me. And he said, look, 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 you're a star. You've got to do whatever your star wants. And he talked about Bruce Willis. Unfortunately, I'm so sad for, for what's happened to, to Bruce Willis and, and his, his, the aphasia. But he told a story about working with Bruce Willis on, on the Die Hard movies. Bruce Willis was a pain in the ass, but you got to do what your star wants. And he sees that that's not, that's not making me feel any better. And then he tells me another story, a Michael Jackson story. About Michael Jackson being on the set of a music video, and everyone in the crew is told, do not talk to Michael. If you talk to Michael, you get fired. Everyone agrees. Cool. The uh, set, uh, assistant set deck has a broken arm. He's got a cast on his arm. And Michael walks up to the, the assistant and says, hey, well, what's wrong with your arm? And the set deck says, oh, yeah, I broke it. They fired the set deck. The next day, Joel's telling me this story. The next day, Michael shows up to work with a cast on his arm in sympathy. And he didn't know the guy had gotten fired? Of course he knew the guy had gotten fired. 
But that was his reaction. It wasn't, he didn't go to the producers and, producers and say, give him his job back. He let the guy be fired and he came in with his cast on, a cast in sympathy for the guy who got fired because of him. And so Joel's point was, they're crazy. They're all crazy, you see? <laughs> and Joel said, you know, so he's going back to the hotel. You got to let him do whatever he wants. I went, okay. And the day's work did not turn out okay. We pretty much had to scrap that day's work in part because we didn't have access to Dennis all day. Mm-hmm. And from that day onward, what little authority I had, teeny weeny, any bit of authority I had to tell Dennis anything was gone. Every time I looked at Dennis, you know, Dennis looked at me like, like he owned me. No doubt. In season one's first five episodes, and in season two's The Whole Schmear, I talked about getting fired off of Perversions of Science before it was even a show. Well, if I want to be honest, I take some joy from the fact that it didn't cut it as a show. But then, if I want to be fair, it never had a chance. Joel called me one day and he said, um, we need another show. And I was like, oh. And he said, you gotta go, you gotta go have lunch with Bob. You know, I know you guys like each other. You talk all the time, which we weren't. I mean, we talked a little bit, but you know, we weren't like best of buddies. And he said, so you guys talk, talk and, and come up with a show. So I go, okay, you know, so I called Bob and Bob was over at Universal. And he said, I said, listen, Bob, I, you know, I don't know what to tell Joel. I, 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 what, what, what are we gonna do? And he said, I tell you what, just come on over. I'll get deli from Jerry's. I'll get chocolate chip cookies. We both like that. And we'll have lunch and we'll talk. And then I'll call Joel and I'll say, we had a nice talk, but we, we didn't come up with anything. I said, great. That's good. Okay, let's do that. So I go over, have lunch with Bob. And while we're talking, you know, we're talking about our youth and what we liked and what we didn't like. And I was saying like, well, you know, I, I kind of liked Outer Limits, you know, and I liked, I liked uh, um, uh, uh, the gallery, the uh, gallery. Uh, What's his name? Night Gallery. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he said, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he said, I like, I like this and that. And I said, yeah, yeah. And why did, why did we like that? Why did we like that as kids? I said, well, you know, it was, it was different. It was weird. It was quirky. It was, you know, wasn't it? It was unexpected. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt the same way. And so we finished our lunch. We finished our cookies. And I go, okay, Bob, I'm going to go. Don't forget to call Joel. And he goes, no, no, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. So I go home. And that night, about 8.30 in the evening, the phone rings, and it's Joel. And he goes, what the fuck is the matter with you? I go, what, 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 what did I do now? He goes, why don't you tell me what's going on? And I go, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, I got off the phone with Bob, and I had to call Bob. He didn't call me. And I had to say, what happened to you and Gil? And he said, well, we, we, you know, I want Gil to tell you. So tell me what it is. So I go, what? What? What are you talking about? And he goes, tell me the idea. Bob said you had a really good idea. Tell me the idea. So I go, well, Joel, we, we had a few of them. So let me check with Bob and I'll call you back. Let me just call Bob. And I call Bob and I go, Bob, are you out of your mind? I got Joel calling me, asking me, what's the idea? What? We don't have an idea. There is no idea. And he, and he starts to laugh and he goes, well, you know, why don't you tell him, you know, it was like what we said about our youth. We like this and we like that. It was twisted. It was this and that, and, and, and it was funny, but it was scary. And, um, and then you say, you, you will work, we're working on it. And, and then he'll leave, he'll leave us alone. So I go, Bob, I thought you were going to talk to him. Just, just, just call him back, call him back. So I call up Joel and I tell him, 
And there's a silence after I speak. And he goes, I love it. I love it. Let's do it. I go, what? What? What do you mean? He goes, I'm going to call Chris Albrecht and set up a meeting for you, me, and Bob. And I'm going, Joel, 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 click. I call Bob back and I go, Bob goes, don't worry about it. It'll go nowhere. It'll, it'll die. Two days later, I get a call from Joel. You, Bob, and I have a meeting with Chris Albrecht at, uh, uh, at HBO to pitch this new show. And I go, Bob, there's no show. You, you and I know there's no show. So how are we going to pitch? So he goes, yeah, but Chris, you know, Chris has always been a big fan of yours. He'll understand what you're saying. He'll see that there's no show. And he'll probably say, you know, we should work on it some more and come back. Don't worry about it. So now we go over to Chris Albrecht's office and it's the three of us. And, you know, Chris is waiting for someone to start the meeting and Joel is looking at me and Bob is looking at me and I'm like, so they go, you know, tell him. I go, tell him? Yeah, Bob, tell him, tell him. So I go, well, you know, it's this idea and it's, and I tell him and, and Chris Albrecht gets up from his desk and he's on the 41st floor in Century City. He looks out the window towards the, the ocean and pauses for a minute and turns around and he goes, let's do it. And I'm like, let's do what? And he goes, that, the show you just told me. I go, well, what do you mean let's do it? And he goes, we'll do 10. And Joel goes, yes, that's terrific, yes. And everybody's congratulating everybody. And I'm like, I'm like sweating. I have no idea what we're talking about. And I take the elevator down with Bob, just the two of us. And I go, Bob, what, what, what are we going to do? I mean, we, you know, we, you and I better get together and talk about what this is because I, I don't know what we sold and I don't, know, I don't know what their expectation is. And Bob looks at me and he goes, Gil, I'm going to be busy for a while. I'm making this movie Contact. So you're kind of on your own. And I said, but, <laughs> but, but Bob, but there is no show. I mean, be, be candid with me, Bob. You, you know there is no show. And he goes, yeah, you'll, you'll figure it out. And that's how perversions happened. There were downsides to working for Joel Silver, but even Gil would admit there were upsides to working for him too. Uh, so we did this Tales from the Crypt with um, Malcolm, right? That's actor so Malcolm McDowell. Years pass, and it's now, oh, I don't know, probably late 90s. And so our movie came out and we've all gone on. And I get a call. I was represented at the, those time in those days by CAA. And I got a call from my agent saying, first of all, what we think is you should be a TV director. And I go, well, no, I'm a, I'm a film producer. And I write with Alan, but I, you know, maybe I want to direct a little more. And they said, well, you should be a TV director. And so the next thing I, I hear from CAA is um, that this new show, um, which is a remake of uh, um, The boss, the boss, the plane, the plane. Oh, fantasy, fantasy island. island. Fantasy mm-hmm. Island. Barry Joseph, Barry Josephson is producing it. Oh, and he's asking for you to direct an episode. Huh. So I get a call from the agent. I go, no, 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 I don't want to. I don't want to do television. You sure? Because it's it's in Hawaii. They're shooting in Hawaii. And because of the schedule, you'd have to be there about eight weeks. And I said, no, I don't care about Hawaii. And I don't care about the eight weeks. And. I, you know, I, I, and I hang up and I'm really upset. Right. And Jean, I go in to see my wife and my wife said, what was that all about? And I said, well, you know, they, they want me to go to Hawaii and direct an episode of uh, 
Fantasy Island. And she said, and? And I said, and I told him no. And she said, so, so you turned down a job to direct a network show, Fantasy Island, with somebody you know, Malcolm McDowell, and we'd be in Hawaii for eight weeks, all expenses paid, plus they're gonna pay you a salary. Is that what you just did? And I said, do you wanna to go to Hawaii? And she said, well, that would be nice. So I ran, ran out of the kitchen, ran over to my office and I called back my agent and I said, well, I'll do it, but I wanna read the script first. And they called me back a few minutes later and they said, the trouble is they would love to agree to that, but they can't agree to that because the script isn't written yet. I said, well, then how am I gonna commit to it? I don't even know what the hell they're doing. And, they, and he said, well, this is what they can do. They can make sure if you agree to do the, move, the, the, the episode, when you leave LA, on the seat, when you get on the plane, will be the script. And I said, that's bullshit. That's never going to happen. Well, that's what they're offering. So we said yes. And I get on the plane. Is, sure enough, there's a script. So I read the script two or three times. My wife reads it two or three times. We get off the plane. And I go, they take me right to a production meeting. Don't go to a hotel. Go right to And I sit down with the executive producers who are now the executive producers of uh, Chicago Med huh. and uh, very established and very good writers. And I go into this room and they said to me, so how do you see the war? And I start sweating because I'm like, the war, the war, what the fuck are they talking about? So I said, oh, the war. Well, <laughs> war. well what were you guys thinking? And they said, well, no, we want to hear what you have in mind. And I said, oh, so could somebody just show me in the script where, where exactly what you're referring to? And in the middle of page 37, there's a sentence that says, the war begins, period. That's what they were referring to. So I, knowing that this means something to them, said, oh, well, that the war, I, I want it to be like Private Ryan, but for television. And by the way, has the first AD done a board for this? Do we, do we know how much time we have to shoot this particular scene? The war begins. Yeah. And so they said, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, let's get the first AD in here. So the AD comes in and he goes, sure, I boarded it out. I haven't gone over it with Gil, but I have it boarded out. And I have a half a day for that scene. Well, the war, I, it just, and it just says the war begins. The war begins. So I go half a day. Okay, so, so let's think about Private Ryan and half a day. So I want IMOs, I want three cameras, and I start spouting off, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but, and they are loving it. So they go, wow, that sounds great, can you, can you do it? And I said, the only thing I wanna do, I, I ask you, is I want this to be the last half of the day of, what, of our eight day shoot. Can we do that? Of course, it gives me more time to prep it. So I, I shoot this, right? Now, while I'm shooting this, I'm, I'm working with Malcolm. And Malcolm one day says uh, to the AD, I need to see Gil privately. And I'm like, what did I do to Malcolm? I mean, oh my God, he's going to fire me. What? So I go behind the sets while they're redoing the lights and I, and I find Malcolm and I go, Malcolm, what's going on? What's the matter? What's the problem? And he goes, no, no, there's no problem. I need you to listen to a conversation that I'm about to have. I'm going to call up the head of ABC and I'm going to tell him, you know, we're doing the fourth episode now. I need you here every other episode. You're by far the best director we've had. 
You talk to the actors, you listen to what we have to say, you make adjustments. These other three Jamokas that before you, they got bigger names, they've done more television, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. So I go, Malcolm, I'm gonna be real honest with you, okay? You don't wanna do that. Of course, the fact is I am frightened to death because every shot I think of, I think there's a better shot. And so I'm not a happy camper. I wanna go home. And he laughs. And I go, no, Malcolm, I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm dead serious. So he goes, okay, okay. And he starts dialing the phone and he gets, he gets ABC and he gets the, I forgot the guy's name is Steve. Um, can't remember his last name, Steve, somebody gets him on the phone. And now Malcolm has him on the speaker and he goes, I'm here with Gil. And I just want to say, I need you to call CAA and book him for every other episode. He is great. And he starts and I'm going, Malcolm, don't, don't, don't say that. No, 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 Malcolm, Mal Malcolm. You, you. He finishes the conversation, hangs up. And of course the guy says, I'm going to call CIA right away. So I get off, he gets off the phone and I go, Malcolm, you just, you just, you're killing me. I, I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm not being coy. I, I, I'm frightened to death. And he goes, I love it. I love it. Just let's, let's go back and shoot. So I, I, I go back to LA. And I said to him, look, I can't do it the next one because they booked me to do Charmed, an episode of Charmed. So I go back to LA. I have about two days of, of uh, downtime. I go do Charmed. By the time I finish Charmed, they had canceled that show. They had only made eight episodes. I had, or the, or I had only done the fourth one. So in the meantime, I finished the first, the first day of working on Charmed. And I meet the three girls. You know, and one is, uh, um, I forgot, the, I forgot um, oh, um, the three gals from, from Charmed. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, fill we'll that in. in. Um, and so, you know, I, I say to them, look, uh, you've been shooting uh, about a half a dozen episodes so far as uh, the first season. And I said, I'm a new guy. So, you know, if I say something or I set something up and you don't like it, or you don't think your character would do it, just say, just tell me that, tell me why, and then we'll figure it out. So of course they don't believe that I mean that. So when the first shot that I set up, the three of them are all over me. And I listen to each one and the AD is saying, come on, we gotta shoot, we gotta shoot. And I said, no, 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 we don't have to shoot. I need to get this right. <clears throat> and so I talk to the three ladies and find out what, I go, okay, well, so how about if we did this? Instead of I'll dolly this way, I'll dolly this way, you'll move this way, you move that way. And I go, Shannon, Shannon Dowardy, is that, is that good for you? Yeah. And I asked, um, um, the other two gals and they said, well, yeah, yeah. And so I shot it that way. And I had a, we had a great day because every, every time we set up a new scene, I would say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I see. And let's try it that way. And let's block it out that way. And if you guys have any conversation you know, to offer up, you know, let's have a conversation about it. You know, now's, now's the time. And of course they, you know, would test me a few times. And then finally they, it got to the point where they, you know, they loved everything. So I finished, I finished shooting the day and I go home <clears throat> and the phone rings <laughs> and, and my wife answers the phone and she says to me, there's a man on the phone. His name is Duke. He wants to talk to Gil Adler. I go, who's, who is he? I don't know. I just told you what he said. My name is Duke. I want to talk to Gil Adler. So I get on the phone. I go, hello? 
And he goes, hello, is this Gil Abbott? I go, yes. He goes, this is Duke Vincent. Now, Duke Vincent at the time was Aaron Spelling's partner and owned Charmed. He goes, this is Duke Vincent. Do you know who I am? And I said, oh, yeah, I know who you are. What's the matter? And he says, what did you do to my girls? I'm thinking, oh, my God, what did they say to him? I mean, oh, my God, I'm probably not going to work tomorrow. And I said, very defensively, I don't know. I, what did I say to you? I, 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 didn't, I don't think I said anything. What, what, why? What did they say I said? And he said, they, they called me each individually, not together. And they just said, you got to get this guy for every other episode of Charmed. You know, we had a great day. We had fun. And, and, and he was really. So now I'm like, oh, OK, cool. So I go, oh, that's so. So he goes, so I'm going to be calling CAA tomorrow oh, to try God. to make a deal with you. Right. I hang up. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know if I want to do this or not. And I'm sitting there and about an hour later. Yeah. About an hour later, the phone rings and it's Joel Silver. And Joel starts yelling at me going, what the hell is the matter with you? You know, I know what you're doing and I don't like it. You're producing for me. And what is this nonsense with the television? You know, you got to stop it. And I said, Joel, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. The thing in Hawaii is dead. The show's got canceled. And he goes, and what about Charmed? I said, how do you know about Charmed? I just finished that. And he goes, don't you worry about how I know everything in Hollywood. I know everything. And of course, Ronnie Meyer was a really good friend of his. So he says, so you got to stop. You got to stop right now. No more television direct. And I go, Joel, I'm just filling in and making a living until we green light our next movie. He goes, I'm green lighting the movie right now. And I go, Joel, I'm sorry. You can't green light the movie. You're not Warner Brothers. He goes, I am Warner Brothers. He goes, well, I said, well, you can't green light the movie. And he goes, okay, okay. You want, you want a check? I'm going to send you a check. I'm going to send a check for $25,000. I said, Joel, this is not about money. And this is not about a check. It's just that I, I'm not making a movie right now. I don't have a movie. So I'm working. When you're ready to make a movie, we'll discuss that. And we get into this big blowout and we both hang up the phone, right? And I'm sort of shaking. And I'm so pissed off. About an hour and a half later, the buzzer rings outside and it's a um, messenger from Warner Brothers. And I figured, oh, it's another script that they want me to look at. And so uh, the guy comes over and he gives me a little envelope. Because it's a check. And I open up the envelope. And it, I'll never forget this. It was a check from Warner Brothers, not from Silver Pictures, for $50,000. Enough said. Just for being you. And I never directed another television episode because <laughs> the next day, the next day I went and I had my office at, uh, in Warner Brothers and we started the next picture. In the first five episodes in the whole schmear, I tell the story of how Bordello of Blood ultimately sent me into a two decade detour. While away, I put my creative energies into raising my two kids. Now, my son loved playing sports, so I coached basketball, soccer, ultimate Frisbee. The button on the whole Bordello of Blood story was my learning two decades out from working for Joel, that Joel was still very much a part of my life. Ultimate is entirely self-officiated. I needed to look up a rule, and that's when I learned that Ultimate Frisbee was invented by who? By Joel Silver. Apparently, 
are talking about it got back to Joel. Well, it got into the ether, and from there it got into a reporter's question. This just happened. Is it true that you invented ultimate frisbee? Um, more or less. At Columbia High School? Yes, I did. How did, well, how did that happen? You just kind of... I mean, it's on the internet. You can read the whole story, but yeah. I mean, it's a long story, but we kind of put that game together, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. I'm proud of that. Every college that had it should erect a statue of you. Oh, I love that. I love watching on ESPN on the championships. Well, thank you very much. Do you watch it? Absolutely. <laughs> Have a great night. See you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast, followed up for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content. Oh, 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 oh,